ideally what would have moved you, and I say ideally, is the beauty of the liturgy itself and the ways you've experienced it. And that's the way the church needs to be celebrating the liturgy so that the, the intensity and beauty of the Eucharistic experience of the church is where people are going, oh, my God, this is incomparable encounter with God. This is incomparable. That's why, why we need to celebrate the liturgy with this beauty that is presumed that it's celebrated with. And I'm telling you, if you're going to be priests, that's what you need to be thinking about. Welcome back to the Theology of the Eucharistic Table podcast with Abba Jeremy Driscoll and seminarians of Mount Angel. Abba Jeremy is teaching four of us seminarians how the Catholic Mass informs our theology, a method which he calls Theology at the Eucharistic Table. And we invite you to join us in our discussions. If you learned from this podcast, we ask you to leave a review on iTunes, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at theology at mountangel.com, that's theologyatmtangel.com, and to personally invite a seminarian, a priest, or a seminary professor to tune in. We hope you enjoy. Well, Ben, since um, you've been, you haven't been with us for, for a while, would you lead us in an opening prayer? Sure, I can do that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Dear Lord, we ask you to please shower us with your blessings as we come before you today in all the different places around the country where we are, and yet come to talk about uh, about you, about theology, our, our study, our knowledge of you, of your revelation, um, and your desire to let us know about you as you know so much about our own hearts. So we ask you to please bless this conversation and guide us along your holy will and come ever deeper into our own relationships with you this day and always. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Well, so we're going to continue on with the same master theme, the fifth master theme on the Trinity, the manifestation of the Trinitarian mystery in the Eucharistic assembly. We've spent, I think, four episodes on it, and we could spend another 40 and only start to scratch the surface. So we'll see yeah, how many really. more we end up <laughs> spending. But Abba Jeremy, you gave us a direction in which we, you wanted us to explore particular pages in the book, pages 189 through 195. For those who, who have the book, you can read those pages. So these pages take their inspiration from the fact that God has revealed himself as one God in three persons, and each of these persons are different persons, and how important that is, that there is an emphasis on the lamb, for example, and that the emphasis on the, la- the lamb is already a revelation that the son is different from, from the father. And, and there's a lot, you take that a lot of places and in, in why we do what we do and why we say what we say. So where, why, why did these pages, why did you want to focus on these pages today? 
Well, it just, it's just been systematic, actually, moving through the article, uh, that particular chapter, because uh, you remember I said it's, you know, it's the shortest chapter in the book, but it's also the densest chapter. And I'm not surprised that we've already spent four, four sessions on it. So this is just the, uh, the next part and the, the final part of the exploration that I laid out. And so it sort of follows as, an, as a further topic of what we've already spoken about. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the second paragraph on page 189 where there's a kind of shift in the topic uh, that speaks about the oneness of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, is, a, is a unique kind of unity, in some sense not comparable to our own weaker experiences of unity, and that the unity of the church, in fact, is a unity that, that derives from the Trinity's uh, unique kind of unity. And that, that's what we're trying to explore there. Uh, I, I say that the oneness of the Father, Son, and the Spirit is a oneness of an altogether different order, uh, a oneness where the diverse members of the Trinity are constituted in their diversity precisely by their unique and wholly particular relationship of unity to the other. That's what we've been exploring, but from there, I want to move on to say that that's the kind of unity that we in the church also enjoy. Uh, our relation, our uni unity in the church does not mean we're all the same. In fact, it means each of us is uniquely different, but we take our ultimate identity by our relationship, our profound relationship with Christ and one another in Christ. So this is the, way, the reason I want to explore it is because we're not just abstractly exploring the Trinity here or the unity of the three persons in the Trinity. The unity of the three persons in the Trinity is where the church's own unity uh, springs forth from that. That brings to, to mind a question, and it isn't directly um, coming off of that, but obviously we are also created in the image of the Trinity. I'm not sure if you've talked about this, but um, is there an aspect where the unity of the Trinity also plays into our own, our own lives as each individual person? Um, we're so often in today's world, you know, where we seem fractured in our, in our lives. There's this aspect of my life. There's that aspect of my life. And, you know, we often struggle to, to connect ourselves, to, be a, to present ourselves as a unified whole to others or in prayer to God. Um, is this kind of a similar aspect where the where the, the church is the unity that we find in the church kind of helps bring that out in us perhaps that unity in the trinity um which we have as created in the image 
I, I, I haven't thought of it in those terms, but I think one can think of it in those terms. I mean, what makes, uh, what makes a person a whole person? Uh, I think uh, what makes, I mean, in, in some sense, uh, we're naturally whole people. Uh, and, sure. uh, and then we get messed up. <laughs> Sin will mess that up big time and keeps you from being whole. Uh, but, you know, the, the, there's a lot that's rather naturally intact in us. But uh, because of the uh, sinful influences of society and, and of our own lives and, and, and the fallen nature of our, our condition, uh, all that, all that sort of divides us within ourselves, and, and certainly divides us from one another. So, when I speak about unity in the church, I'm speaking about uh, a new, a new kind of relationship that I enter into in virtue of my baptism, ultimately. Uh, but my relationship in baptism means I have, I have a whole new existence. I am a new creation in baptism and that new creation includes an a, a new we could say an, an identity for me uh, an identity um yeah an identity for me uh Zizulas calls it my ecclesial identity which doesn't sound very interesting but it's wonderful if you think about it. my ecclesial identity in fact is uh that I am who I am in, as, as a child of God in the place within the Trinity. I am adopted into, into Christ's place as son, and I have his relationship with the Father and his relationship with the Holy Spirit. And for that same reason, I have a relationship with you and all other baptized members. And so that's my new identity, and that makes a person whole. When I really sure. yield to that, all the requirements of this ecclesial community, that is healing in itself. That makes a person healthy and whole. Because what I'm doing is, it's, it's being in the image of the Trinity is being uh, self-emptying love. That's what that's what we we've been talking about the kenosis uh, of the Father in the eternal generation of the Son, and the kenosis of the Son, the self-emptying of the Son in the incarnation, and the kenosis of the Holy Spirit through the ascended Son. All that self-emptying, in fact, is God's way of being. God is this is self-emptying love. So when I take that, when I enter into that same set of relationships of self-emptying love, when I'm self-emptying myself in love, then I become this new ecclesial person uh, that is in the image of the, of the persons of the Trinity. And that makes me whole. I'm, uh, that's what makes that person an attractive and loving person. And that's that's my my identity. Yeah, it, it just it makes me think of what a saint is, you know. When, when we think of 
the examples of of life that the saints leave us um, it's of people who were in this deep relationship with the Trinity in such a way that it you saw it flowing out in the rest of their lives where they had this understanding of their unity with God and experience of that and they moved then like John Paul St. John Paul II, Mother Teresa, people spoke of them as being so focused on whoever was in front of them in the moment. You know? Yeah. They they were they in that moment were living entirely for this other in a really a, as as you could almost say a canonic self offering of love, which they re, they had received from the Trinity. And so you saw that lived out, you know. Yeah, yeah. You have on page 190, uh, Ben, uh, do you have the book there, Ben? I don't know if you do or not, but... Um, I don't have it with me. Yeah. yeah. So you, he'll remember this from class. That no one in the liturgical assembly is an individual who subsists or can be defined in his own right. Each is who he is because of a precise relationship a holy order in which he stands to the other. And then I go on to speak about the relationship that I have with the bishop, uh, who is the head of the Eucharistic Assembly, or if he's not there, he sends a priest who represents him as the head of the Eucharistic Assembly. And it's that game, I'm not you and you are not me, the bishop is not the assembly and the assembly is not the bishop but neither is who they are without the relationship to the other. What that is mirroring is the same unity that you have in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, but the Father is always the Father of the Son, and consequently always in relationship with the Son. And the Son is always Son of the Father, and so on with the Holy Spirit. So I think it's my concern and the reason I wanted to cover these pages with you guys uh, is that this is how we achieve, how we're given, really, unity in the church. Otherwise, our tendency is to try to achieve unity by human means. And human means uh, don't uh, don't ultimately bring it about. It's, it's, a, it's a being caught up into these energies of self-emptying love that are the, the Trinity's own uh, relationships among themselves. And uh, after that, then, uh, on the bottom of page 90, we go into seeing that what I'm talking about here is, uh, I use that as an interpretive key for the mysterious texts in the book of Revelation. Uh, because what uh, there's some really beautiful texts in Revelation that um, that describe assemblies in heaven, and they are you could say they're assemblies that display a magnificent unity, but they also uh, are full of differences. Uh, people from every tribe and nation and tongue but all united around the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. Uh, 
this is this is really these are amazing visions and we're not you know we sort of don't quite know what those texts mean and so we skip over them and don't stay with them long enough well that's not being a theologian <laughs> skipping over different <laughs> texts uh so the, i wanted i wanted us to stay with these texts and see uh see what they mean yeah and it's it's only and of course you, you see those huge multitudes before God. They're, they're united before God's face, before his throne. Um, mm-hmm. So it's precisely, again, in the liturgy that we find this, um, our unity from the Trinity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Lumen Gentium quotes, I, don't, I think it's in paragraph eight, I'm not sure though, but it quotes uh, Cyprian, uh, and the definition of the church that uh, uh, the unity of the church uh, is a unity. It's, Cyprian is already saying that in the second, the end of the second century, beginning of the third. He's saying uh, that the unity uh, of the church is that unity which comes from out of the unity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lumen Gentium puts that in, in very clear relief. And it's just recovering these same thoughts that I'm pushing around on these pages. Sure. Sure. Could you give an example, Father Abbott, about uh, going back to how we achieve unity in the church, not by human means, but by being taken up into the Trinity. Can you think of an instance in which we have tried, whether as individuals or as a church, we've tried to come up with unity by human means. And so to be able to point out how we did that incorrectly, and then what would the correct way would be? What would it look like? Well, yeah, I think, you know, uh, we spoke about that probably earlier uh, when we spoke about uh, demonic division in the church. Um, the the unity um, uh, when we there's two basic ways that sociology identifies of human beings trying to achieve unity. One is by a sort of totalitarian insistence on uniformity. Everybody does the same, dresses the same, says the same thing. And there's no, there's no room for individuality, and that will create unity of everybody because individuality doesn't get in the way. And when, In fact, people are crushed in systems like that. Um, you know, uh, communist systems or fascist systems do that. Uh, the other sociological alternative is sort of uh, what I call friendly liberal expansiveness, uh, which is just say, well, every everybody can just say what they think, and and it's all true, <laughs> and so we'll be unified by just being nice to one another, even though we're living with contradictory uh, versions of reality in our minds and in our actions but everyone will just sort of be friendly and let everyone do what they feel best about. And, and then we'll all be one. Those, those are cultural tendencies that all of us are, 
are victims of and and we have it we have it in our in our national scene culturally uh where you where just like you, you know we're no longer able to achieve a deep unity as a society uh because we don't share enough uh uh common cultural visions and so what are the approaches to either just let everyone think and act as they want and and hope you have a society because everyone's going to be friendly and nice or the other is to insist that uh people all act the same way now within the church uh those same tendencies can show up where where you where where there's not an appreciation for individual differences and we think everyone in the church has to act and think in the same way and that that will that will achieve unity or you have friendly liberal expansiveness in the church which would just lead to say well no come on everybody is uh is able to to have a relationship with god and define the truths what in a what a real ecclesial existence is 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 a is entering into relationships in which i'm defined in who i am and consequently how i think truths and how i live my moral existence by being in unity with this whole structure of unity around the bishop's eucharist and that i do that not because that that doesn't force me into a, a kind of thinking that i would would want would otherwise object it self empties me into a bigger reality and that's you know that's the ideal of the structure of um, of the guidance of tradition scripture magisterium that's not like some people get to be in charge who knows why a uh, magisterium of the bishops is not understood unless we realize that the magisterium of the bishops is rooted in the bishops uh presiding at the eucharistic sacrifice that's why the same communion of bishops needs to articulate truths and moral imperatives for us as well so that i'm not just i don't know why i'm obeying those guys i don't know why i'm willing to be in relationship with those guys no i know why i'm willing to to be shaped by a magisterium because i know what my experience with with the bishop is through the eucharist that in him uh and through his ministers this is the sacrament of christ at the head of the church so it's ultimately from christ himself that this unity is is being derived well yeah that's um that's very helpful especially to of course in in today's climate in the church um uh, to understand our unity um to the bishops in that way is coming coming from the eucharist especially coming from our our union with god that the eucharist gives us access to so thank you that's great
So then, did you are you looking at something there for the abbot that you want to? No, I was, I was hoping that you were. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So then, I mean, you know what I think. Those are those pages. So you tell me, tell me what you think of them or, or what you find in them. Well, I wanted to shift to the the images that we that we see in Revelation in the book of Revelation. And you're right, that's not something that we hear much about or that I've heard much about or spent virtually any time studying. I remember in, in reading Scott Hahn's book, The Lamb's Supper, he brings out how the Mass, you know, in many ways, St. John's description of the Mass is what we find in in the book of Revelation in in the in with these images and these elaborate descriptions but i haven't spent enough time or virtually any time digging into the particular images so maybe we can just slow, slow down into some of these images that you bring out and how what what their significance are and um and maybe where appropriate what their applications are. Well, let's, let's go then to the top of page 191 where I deal with some of them. Um, you have, there's a throne around which others are gathered, uh, a throne of one whose appearance sparkled like Jasper, it says, around which are arranged 24 other thrones on which 24 elders sat. The flaming torches that are the seven spirits of God surround the throne. And in the midst of the throne, God's throne, there appears the lamb that has been slain. And to him, the whole assembly sings its praises. Well, you know, you just, when you hear something like that, you do we just roll our eyes and move on to something more interesting? Or what does that mean? I want to, you know, a theologian wants to know what that means. And so I'm suggesting that what we have here is a vision of God. That should catch our interest. We have here a vision of God, but not just God. God and a whole bunch of other people or beings around God. So God never shows himself to us just alone. And uh, so there's, uh, and we're going to go on to see there's a huge multitude is being, is being described here. Uh, but very striking, and this brings us right to the heart of being able to penetrate with joyful contemplation the mystery of the Trinity. You have God's throne, and then you have this expression, the lamb that has been slain. This is... This is theological language, it's poetic language, which describes Jesus crucified. He's the lamb that has been slain. But this is a vision of heaven. So what do we have a vision of? We have a vision of God and on God's throne, and right next to that, a lamb that has been slain. So we've got God, but God not appearing without the slain lamb. This is huge. This is, this is father and son. It's a vision of father and son. We need to be able to recognize that. 
But we also need to be able to recognize that this vision is given to us and that there are these others there, these 24 elders. These, these are presbyters. These are liturgical ministers, if you will. These, this is a liturgical assembly. And we're meant to understand our own liturgical assembly by looking at this liturgical assembly. And it, it, it said here, uh, to him the whole assembly sings its praises. God and the Lamb are distinguished, but they share the same throne. See, this is amazing. Everybody's singing to God. Uh, the rest of the heavenly court worships, not just a vague worship of God, but it's a worship of the Lamb that has been slain. This is very significant. So we're not just worshiping God. We're worshiping the Son as well. So uh, I write here, that is to say, this is heavenly worship based precisely on an earthly event, the Paschal mystery of Jesus. And then I quote one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures, Jesus's words in Revelation 1.18, once I was dead, he says, but now I live forever and ever. Well, this is, this is a huge object of contemplation for us. If he can say, once I was dead, you've heard me joke about that. Who, who says once I was dead? Once you're dead, just stop talking. You know? Yeah. But no, he's alive again. So he can say, and he rejoices in saying, once I was dead, but now I live forever and ever. So I'm describing... The revelation is describing the assembly that I'm in. And I'm going to, I'm not just an individual trying to figure out who God is by myself. Rugged individualism. I'm me. I'll, I'll decide who God is. No. I'm willing to enter this assembly and to define my existence by my relationship to the lamb i will I, i'm i'm going to praise the lamb and i'm going to praise god um so when he says uh once i was dead but now i live forever and ever uh, that once which includes the whole of history in it is now united to the forever of heaven um this is amazing because the sun has an eternal existence in heaven from all eternity. And he has, as it were, disrupted that and died and then comes back into, into heaven and, and proclaims himself as alive forever. Again, this is the object of our contemplation, you guys. This, I'm trying to get you to see this and adore it. Adore him. It's all well and good to say we love Jesus and everything like that. Well, who is he? This is huge. He's God in, in all this glory. But he is manifesting himself as somebody who, he's defining himself as once I was dead, 
as a human being, I was dead. I even, I, that's his relationship with us and our own being caught in sin and death. He fixed that. So the, the, the fact that he can say, once I was dead, is, is him saying, I'm a human being, and now I live forever and ever as God. And, and, and that is the one with whom I enter into relationship in baptism. That is my new existence. My relationship with him is my new existence. And that new existence, then, is my own living forever and ever. You go back to where we were at the beginning of this conversation, Ben. You know, what makes a person whole? This, this is what I wanted to say. This, this, this is what makes us whole. This is, this, this is a unified person when we know Christ in this way and at this level. So something like that, that's, that's just contemplation based very solidly on the scriptures and on our Eucharistic experience. And, and we just, you know, I'm concerned we don't dig into it enough. The church needs to dig into this. This is what it means to be a theologian, not just solving practical problems. That too. But this is the whole new reality. And, and we need to get into it as deeply as we possibly can. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes, which helps those who are searching for content similar to ours to find our show, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at theologyatmountangel.com, that's theologyatmtangel.com, and to tell your friends about our podcast, especially the seminarians, priests, and seminary professors whom you know. Above all, we ask you to pray for us seminarians, priests, monks, and professors at Mount Angel Abbey and Seminary, and to take the content from this episode into your own prayer. Until next time.